believe it. It is here. Uh, this is going to be the last episode of 2020, folks. And to be honest, I am glad to see this year go. It's hard to believe, though, 37 episodes ago, we were kicking off the new year with conversations with Andrew Wilkes, David Justice, and Jörg Rieger. Um, I've journeyed a lot, uh, to say the least, and, and I hope you have too. The new year is going to be loaded with some dope interviewees. Um, I already have like too many kind of lined up, and I, I should probably slow down, but I just get a little excited. Um, so I hope you'll join us and keep sharing the pod with your church friends, co-workers, and classmates. And now, we're going to wrap up the year with the fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, today, we start with a passage. Actually, we're going to do one passage today. There were a couple others. Most of them, I, I just nothing really clicked with me. Um, I thought about doing a Luke one, but I ended up just kind of writing about um, a topic that came that comes from the Second Samuel text. So, um, we're going to start with this passage. Uh, in part, it's actually about making it clear to the listeners that King David is in the proper lineage as king, and was legitimately chosen by God to displace Saul and start a new great lineage. But it might also be narrating why the first temple wasn't built under the rule of David, but would be built under Solomon's reign after him. And don't worry, maybe some of you were like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> I'm not going to go down that route. Um, let's just go ahead and start with our text. It's Second uh, Samuel 7, 1 through 11. So long story short, But David is sitting all high and mighty in his palace one day, and he thinks to himself, now I'm paraphrasing here, but he thinks to himself, I've invaded and murdered and conquered and enslaved my way into this palace and onto this throne, but God is still living in a tent. Perhaps he wondered, well, this can't be good PR. Better give God a palace too. So he gets it in his head that he'll build God a big quote, house of cedar. You know, that's the English translation, house of cedar. But soon after, God visits the prophet Nathan in a dream and apparently tells him to tell David, listen, I've always been in a tent and you're not the one to build me a house. Ever since we fought our way out of Egypt, I have been with the placeless people from the tent. We've moved, all, we've moved around all over and I never asked for a house of cedar. I turned you from a shepherd into a king. I helped you slaughter a bunch of people. And you know what? I've got two more tricks up my sleeve. I'm going to, one, make a place for my people, Israel, so that they can finally land on their feet. And two, I'm going to make you a house. Or maybe later on they'll call it a dynasty. Okay, now, I actually just want to talk about tents for a while. But before we do that, we had better mention a few things about this text. In my opinion, these stories were produced to legitimize David, who successfully put on a coup to overthrow Saul, and then invaded and conquered and enslaved a lot of people until he was one of the most powerful kings the Israelites would ever see. Okay, so I know that the author and early audience wouldn't have taken the story where I want to go with it today, but if you would, let's lay all that stuff down and get creative. Now, we often acknowledge on this show that the Bible proudly confesses to a lot of genocide and colonization. And I don't think some religious narrative should ever legitimize imperialism or colonization, right? Not then and not now. 
in U.S. American Christianity in particular is primarily, in, in my perspective, an imperialist and colonizing religion, okay? And before we start thinking about God working from tents, I want to make a quick correlation between what I've been reading in The Gods of Indian Country by Jennifer Graber and the colonization that 2 Samuel is divinizing and naturalizing. So in The Gods of Indian Country, Graber talks about how white Protestant denominations, but also um, Roman Catholic institutions, played major roles throughout the 19th century in colonizing indigenous nations um, in kind of the southern plains, and believing their colonizing efforts were charitable and benevolent. And one major concern that these self-identified Protestant, quote, friends of the Indian, right, that's what how they, that's how they identified themselves. Um, uh, one of the ma their major concerns they had with the plains um, indigenous peoples were that they were hunters rather than farmers, which meant they seasonally moved with buffalo across vast tracts of land, which, of course, was a problem for the capitalists and imperialists and white settlers that wanted their land, right? And so one of the primary goals of the white church in the 19th century regarding indigenous communities was their removal from vast lands and their containment on enclosed, militarized, segregated prison camps called reservations, right? Where they would live in permanent houses instead of teepees and tents. Indigenous peoples in the Southern Plains needed to be removed from their tents and teepees and forced into private property relations and permanent housing if capital, imperialism, and white bourgeois Jesus were to conquer and subdue their people and their land. I just found this to be an interesting correlation with the text. It kind of popped in my head, right? The act of colonizing people and lands by forcing them out of their teepees and tents and into permanent housing based on private property, right? A brutal dynamic of Christianity's capitalisms and the United States' uh, history. Okay, so now let's take a turn. Not far off then is our scripture where God tells Nathan to remind David that God has always dwelled in and worked from a tent, God had never lived in a house of cedar among the kings and the landlords and the military generals, or we might say among the settlers, the capitalists and imperialists. As long as there were displaced, dispossessed, alienated people, then God would dwell in a tent among them wherever they were forced to move. Something I thought was interesting was this language of God dwelling among and working with the people from a tent while David ruled from a house of cedar. Now, we all know that the scriptures aren't talking about the kind of tents concentrated and contained and policed in certain areas of our cities, right? The tent the text is referring to is the big tent, right? The, the, the tabernacle, the place where the presence of God resided after slavery and during their constant wandering and lack of place. But if we were to allow a play on words for a moment, God is in a tent and God dwells among the displaced, the placeless, the disposable. Perhaps we might say the gentrified, the alienated, the uprooted. And God wants to give these disposable, placeless, alienated people a home, a place to build community in deepen relationships, 
a sense of purpose in relation to a particular land and community. And yet, economic and political powers have undermined their ability to be a community with a place, to be a people grounded in one another in the land. Not unlike the Christians and U.S. military and white settlers who, to this day, continue to undermine and block efforts for indigenous sovereignty, there are economic and political powers that deny many people the joy of making home, of building community, of planting roots, of deepening relationships, all because they cannot or simply wish not to pay the price capitalism demands for adequate housing, right? The just the cost of private property. And so in a world where people are being denied place, dumped into tents, stripped of their communal ties, contained to certain parts of the city, policed out of the sight of communities who who think of themselves as white or middle class, God says, I don't live in a house of cedar, David. You can find me wherever the people are. At our previous apartment, there was a a grocery store down the street. And at the edge of the parking lot, there were bushes. Um, Those bushes were a home to humans who live in tents. Until the garbage trailer was parked outside of it this past spring and some people were paid to trash the belongings of another person's home, that tent, those bushes, were people's home. Okay, Charlotte has numerous and growing tent communities, <clears throat> and they're being concentrated um, in what we kind of call the crescent, uh, certain areas of, uh, of the city. But so does every major city in the U.S., from Miami to Atlanta to Nashville to St. Louis to Denver to Los Angeles to San Francisco, right? And while many folks understandably wish to include these persons and communities into society, Right? into capitalism or maybe even into the church, what many Christians do not understand is that the people who are forced to live in tent communities are already included into capitalism's endless pursuit of profit, into the church's endless participation in attempting to colonize the world. Because now there is no being excluded Think with me, despite what white bourgeois Christian charity would have us believe, tent communities do not reside at the edges of the world. They are not aberrations to an otherwise good and just structure. They are part and parcel, both an aspect of the system of capitalism and its center. Today they exist because of capital, and they will continue to exist for the sake of capital. And I don't mean that a particular neighborhood or um, a town or even a country couldn't kind of end, quote-unquote, end their homelessness, right? Because cities say dumb shit like this all the time. They bulldoze a tent community, and voila, no more tents here, right? They allow developers to get their filthy, blood-soaked hands on marketable property, and within five years... No more low-income faces in the neighborhood, right? Developers and landlords and the asshat cowards that are our city council members tout, we want to provide jobs for the unemployed. And -and so-and-so developer promises some percent of low-income housing, right? But those promises are just bullshit. The working class and poor people, they want pushed out, will be pushed out, 
and the mostly white, relatively better wage earners they want brought in will move on in. And the suffering that occurs in the lives of those who live in the tents will remain the object of those who think of themselves as middle class or Christian. Just as whiteness feeds on black suffering, middle class and Christian identity leads much of our working class here in the U.S. to feed on the economic suffering of the poorest of our class, and especially the criminalized and unemployed, whom Marxists sometimes kind of refer to as the lumpen proletariat. We see someone worse off than us, and instead of seeing another whose freedom and liberation is tied up with our own, we see them as an opportunity to pity, we, uh, a person to advocate for, an empty container that we can just dump ourselves into because we need to feel like we're good and special and caring, right? Our meaninglessness, our, our alienated days feel meaningful by doing nice things that don't actually uh, end up helping people in the long run. So instead of living in a house of cedar, looking down at the displaced and disposable people with pity and a paternalistic spirit, God dwells among and works alongside the people from a tent because God knows these people are not external to the system. They're not being excluded from some otherwise good and just society. Their suffering and their degradation is their being included, right? Their, their agony is their inclusion, that is the role that they play in the system. Because under capitalism, somebody has to or it all falls apart. Tent communities or people like yourself and, and, and myself who are continually being alienated and stripped from life-giving communities and relationships. Um, the disposable and displaced peoples of our towns and cities, right? We all desperately need each other in our fight for a new humanity, a new way of being in relationship, in our fight for dignity and for power. And so next time you see a tent community, remember that you need those people more than you have ever realized. And you should get to actually know those people who are structurally being forced into tents. You know, we should dwell among and work alongside those who live in tents. They are not the thieves of our cities. They're not the ones who are violent or are criminal. It is the cops who are criminal. The landlords and developers and bosses who are thieves. It is the racist, sexist, capitalist state that first strikes with violence. So rather than trying to charitably uplift individuals who are worse off than us by telling them they could become good capitalists if they only worked harder... We need to organize the disposable and displaced peoples of our communities into people's movements whose demands are fearlessly fought for and by the people themselves, right? Not by activists, not by pastors, not by elected politicians. The people themselves, whether they are living in a tent, paying rent, or paying on a mortgage, the masses of working class and unemployed and criminalized people must be taught that we only have each other. And while it is true that our enemies are powerful, so are we when we organize and struggle in solidarity with one another. 
It's been a pleasure to journey with you this Advent. Um, I've learned a lot in these last few weeks personally, and, and I think the main thing that I'm going to take away from doing this series was the importance of participation. I mean, it really just kind of like really shook me up um, in the earlier weeks. Um, what's Advent, right? Uh, but really, like, what is our Christian faith if we are not going to actively anticipate the destruction of this world? in the realization of a holy other world, made by the people and for the people, a world built for love and not for profit. So, all right, my friends, drop an iTunes rating in the Faith and Capital stocking, if you would. And if you um, if you enjoyed this year's worth of content or found it meaningful and have some spare change, a buck or two on Patreon, uh, is always much appreciated. And do me a favor, share this pod with church friends uh, and classmates and coworkers. I'm pouring millions of dollars into a, a upcoming 10-second Super Bowl commercial. But you know, I, I really think that um, word of mouth is probably the best way to spread the love of Christ and the love of communism. So uh, yeah, that'd be dope. Okay, everyone. Um, it's been a pleasure, and uh, we'll, uh, uh, I'll talk to you all soon.